Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Michael Gerhardt about his new book, Lincoln's Mentors, The Education of a Leader. Professor Gerhardt serves as the Burton Craig Distinguished Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of North Carolina Law School. His teaching focuses on constitutional conflicts between presidents and Congress. Michael Gerhardt, welcome to That Said. Thank you. It's great to be here. So this book, Lincoln's Mentors, The Education of a Leader, was, I think, a terrific read. Um, and I'll ask you in a second what prompted you to write this book. But first, please tell us about yourself. Give us, give the listening audience, if you will, your pedigree. Well, thank you for the kind words. Uh, so I uh, currently am a constitutional law professor. I teach constitutional law at the University of North Carolina Law School and at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Um, and, um, and so my interest, obviously, is very deep as it relates to the Constitution. And, um, and of course, the Constitution was very important to Abraham Lincoln since the Constitution's fate was very much at stake when Lincoln was president. But I also come at this interest... Um, from the fact that I grew up in the Deep South, uh, I grew up in the southern part of Alabama, and I grew up then uh, during the late 60s and, se- and then through the 70s. And that was a time when the civil rights movement was unfolding. So I became familiar with that civil rights movement because it was happening right in front of me. And I saw what difference law made in, um, during that period. And Lincoln was also a lawyer, of course. Law mattered a great deal to him. So One way or another, I was going to be interested in Lincoln, both because an interest in civil rights inevitably takes one towards Lincoln and what he achieved as president. But I also um, uh, was led to Lincoln because once you start studying the Constitution, you inevitably study Reconstruction and you study the Civil War that led to Reconstruction. And that means you're studying Lincoln and his vision of the Constitution, which is ultimately championed and reflected in the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments. Great. That's great. So. In some sense, you've answered the question, what prompted you to write this book? But but it's not simply so. I've listened to you speak about this book in the past, and I think your explanation for it is worth elaborating on. Well, I, I, I got interested in Lincoln for the reasons I've just mentioned, but um, one of my profound areas of interest in constitutional law has to do with how the Constitution operates, how it functions outside of the Supreme Court. So many constitutional law scholars are consumed by or obsessed with what the Supreme Court has to say about the Constitution. But I am interested in, okay, what happens if the Supreme Court is really silent or not part of the event itself? And that area of interest has defined all my areas of study really over the last 30 years, impeachment, appointments, um, and as one learns about these different areas, you invariably come back to Lincoln. Lincoln is constantly a model, constantly a metric, constantly somebody who has a great seal, say, has a great say about the Constitution outside the courts, apart from the courts. And so uh, having run into Lincoln so many different times, I thought it would, it would be interesting to really get deeply uh, interested in what Lincoln's life had been and how he became Lincoln. Um, that's a great mystery about how does this guy with virtually no experience in the federal government, only two years in the House, how does this guy become one of America's two greatest presidents, maybe Washington being the other? 
Um, and the answer is what I try to suggest in the book. It's the story I tell in the book of how he sought out and found mentors who would help teach him the skills and the vision he would need to be a successful president. Right. And so we find ourselves talking literally uh, as this will be released on the 156th anniversary of his assassination. April 14th was when he was shot. I think he died in the morning of the, of the 15th. Yes. Uh, but he was assassinated for all intents and purposes uh, as we, as, as we speak. And um, he has continuing importance. And I think that your perspective of how did Lincoln become Lincoln? What he learned, how he learned, who he learned from gives us great insight into um, his guide, guiding philosophy, which we'll, which we'll talk about in, in a little bit. You, you write that from five men, Lincoln learned valuable lessons on how to master party politics, to campaign for office, to understand and use executive power, to negotiate, to manage a cabinet, to craft a speech, and to develop policies and a constitutional vision that fit the times and became his most enduring legacy. So perhaps we can use that as a jumping off point and have you tell us about these five mentors, who they were, and how they informed Lincoln's education. Because after all, as you say in the book, and everyone knows, he was self-taught. Um, but he was self-taught not just by being a voracious reader, but by learning to learn from others. So let's start with Henry Clay. Sure. Um, so Lincoln, um, of course, as you point out, is largely self-educated. He only had at most one year of formal schooling. That would have been when he was very, very young. And the question just becomes, how did Lincoln um, develop the understanding and skills that he later manifested or exhibited when he was president. And he did it not just by reading books, but he was a fabulous reader of people. So if Lincoln had had a genius, and he certainly did have a genius um, uh, aspect to himself, it was in his recognition of what he needed to know and, and how he would go about learning it. So he didn't just look to the people he agreed with. He looked to all the people around himself, and he ends up zero, and, and ends up referring to and relying on these five time and again throughout his life. So that's the pattern that caught my attention that I'm writing about. And the one of the five who probably had the most impact on Lincoln was Henry Clay. So remember, Lincoln is born in Kentucky. Who's the most prominent Kentuckian in Lincoln's life? It's Henry Clay, the great senator from Kentucky. Um, but it wasn't just the fact that Clay had become famous and successful as a politician. Clay was also a great speaker. So what Lincoln's going to learn as he studies and memorizes Clay's speeches, um, he's going to learn first about the art of compromise. That was, that was really important to uh, Clay. Secondly, Clay had a vision of the Constitution. That vision had to do with the fact that um, the, con the Congress, not the president, would be the driving force in um, overseeing national policy. Also, the federal government would play a very critical role in providing what are called internal improvements. Those are the things that tighten the United States, things like railroads, uh, streets, navigable waters. Um, and the federal government would have an important part in trying to uh, uh, 
develop policies that would help unite the country. Lincoln was completely captivated by that. And that's the philosophy he ends up carrying through the rest of his life. But it was the rhetoric of uh, Clay that really sort of caught Lincoln's attention. He was fascinated with words, fascinated with stories. So from a young age, he's memorizing Clay's speeches and 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 delivering them to friends and others. And those become the models for his own political speeches. uh, And you see, as you follow Lincoln's life, how he's modeling his speeches and even his political stances on Clay's. And so that impact that Clay has on Lincoln is so important that when Lincoln becomes president, he's really even thinking of himself by that time as a Clay man. He's quoting Clay all the time. This is 10 years after Clay dies. And Lincoln's still thinking along the lines of Clay. And he's adapting Clay's vision. This becomes part of his legacy. He adapts that vision um, to the presidency and in the presidency uh, to become the famous uh, president that he becomes. Yeah, and and I think Clay's Clay's system was called the American system, right? So uh, you've talked about it a little bit, but flesh it out because Lincoln really sort of took the American system from its origin and used it as a guiding principle uh, as president. That's right. Uh, So Clay's vision was encapsulated in this phrase, the American system. And the American system was, um, was really the culmination of a number of policies that Clay envisioned that Congress would enact. Uh, Many of these policies would have to do with building the infrastructure of the United States. And building that infrastructure would actually help tighten and unify the country as a whole. At the same time, the federal government would be, uh, would have a unique role in this American system of helping to provide education and the opportunities for people to become independent economic actors what were called self-made men. That's all part of Clay's vision. And then another big part of that vision is that um, the presidency would not be so much, would, would not be tyrannical in this system of government, but would be important for implementing the congressional policies. These were all, um, all together, these are the, the, the parts of um, Clay's vision of the American system. As you say, Lincoln champions that both when he's in Congress and when he's um, running for office at various times. And it, once he becomes president, Lincoln doesn't stop thinking about it. Instead, Lincoln continue, continues to understand and adapt that vision to develop other things like the Intercontinental Railroad across the United States, uh, improving navigable waters, developing an army that would be for the U.S. rather than for one state. Uh, Lincoln is thinking of a lot of different policies that in a sense are beyond what Clay might have envisioned, but they're all designed to help uh, put into effect the American system in 1864, 1865. And, and there's an ideological uh, part of this that's of interest to me, which is Clay, it seems like Lincoln, sort of sublimated strict political ideology for common sense pragmatism. He wanted to get things done. Yes. Is, That's right. So Lincoln's a, Lincoln becomes a pragmatist. That may, be, that may be a reflection of his own character and temperament, but on the national scene, the primary actor who was pragmatic, perhaps even to a fault, was Henry Clay. 
So Lincoln is learning from that pragmatism. He, he becomes a pragmatist himself. He, he just imbibes that. He internalizes that. And so he becomes even more cold-blooded, in a sense, as a pragmatist than Clay himself. And it's the pragmatism that allows Lincoln to appear to some people to be on both sides of an issue. It's the pragmatism that keeps Lincoln from going too far ahead of public opinion, always being able to sort of either follow it or ride it. Those are Lincoln's great skills. And uh, Lincoln's also a pragmatist to the point where he, he backs Clay until ba- Clay is no longer viable as a candidate. And then Lincoln shifts support because he wants to back a winner. In the end, Lincoln understands that pragmatism is of no value if it is not actually available and present in the administration of government. And in order for that to happen, somebody's got to win elections. So Lincoln becomes pragmatic in seeking, um, in, in pragmatic in campaigning, and campaigning, and, and he's pragmatic once he's in office too. Right, and that perhaps takes us to his second mentor, uh, Zachary Taylor, who sort of is the next right. step in, in 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 a way. These are not necessarily in chronological order, but right. as I see his um, political and emotional and ideological development, I see Zach, Zachary Taylor sort of following this line that you're taking us down. Well, of all these mentors, uh, Clay is the one that Lincoln probably identifies first. So um, once he, in his first opportunity to vote in a presidential election, it's a contest between Andrew Jackson and Henry Clay, and Lincoln will vote for Clay. So Lincoln's already, in a sense, um, looking up to Clay in this early part of his life. He's in his early 20s. Um, but as time goes on, Lincoln always attentive to what's happening around him and happening in politics, Lincoln becomes aware of the second major Kentuckian, the second most prominent Kentuckian in Lincoln's lifetime, and that's Zachary Taylor. Um, Taylor uh, is also the winning general in the Mexican War. He becomes a president uh, who's following the same political philosophy Lincoln had followed. It's called the Whig philosophy. Whig, uh, was, the Whig party was founded by Henry Clay, and it was supposed to be the party of the people, the party of Congress, uh, the party that would help unify the United States, the party that believed in unity in the country. Um, and so Zachary Taylor campaigns as a Whig, gets elected as a Whig, and <clears throat> try, but doesn't govern as a Whig. He, as, as president, he actually takes the lead from Congress on slavery, which um, would not have been consistent with Whig philosophy, but it's how Taylor thought he should govern. And Lincoln is not just aware of this, he's on scene. He's actually at Taylor's inauguration. He's in Congress and Taylor, Taylor gets elected. He knows Taylor. And Taylor and Clay are the two people he eulogizes, the only two people he ever eulogizes. And from Taylor, he learns a kind of to be steadfast, to be tough. Clay was tough, but, but flexible. Taylor was tough and not flexible. Um, and Taylor was also somebody who wouldn't mind taking difficult and hard stands. So Lincoln appreciates all that in Taylor, but he'll also learn from Taylor's mistakes. Taylor forms a terrible cabinet that's not behind his policies. Lincoln keeps trying to advise Taylor to do otherwise. So once Lincoln becomes president, you'll see him follow his advice, including the advice that Taylor had rejected. Yeah, and I think it was... Well, Taylor doesn't last in office, but a year and a half or so, right? right. And, That's and, right. And then he's he's dead. 
but is it do I have it right that that Lincoln on the train ride to Washington for his own inauguration stops and 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 speaks of Taylor and and describes of him as the person who was responsible for his quote political education meaning um real life experience is that right Yes, and it's it's quite a phrase, and it's even a bit of a surprise to a lot of people who've studied Lincoln for a long time, that when Lincoln gives his speech, he's not talking about Henry Clay. Uh, he's, in, he's in Pennsylvania. He's talking to a, a friendly audience, but he tells this friendly audience, uh, mostly of former Whigs, um, that it is Zachary Taylor who's responsible for Lincoln's um, constitutional vision or his political philosophy. And what Lincoln means by that is he learned from Taylor um, what it took to be president of the United States. Uh, And what it took was first a real toughness, a steeliness, a willingness to sort of go against the crowd if necessary in uh, in, uh, the search for uh, a constitutional vision. Beyond that, uh, it's a willingness to defer to Congress on domestic legislation. So Lincoln's not going to be, he's not going to veto things. He's going to try to support congressional policy. And that's largely what he does when he's president of the United States. And then last but not least, um, he understands that Taylor had also responded to efforts in Congress to stifle him, to stifle himself, for example, not confirming a number of appointments. So Taylor actually made a record number of recess appointments. The, the next president in office to make the second most historic number of recess appointments is Lincoln. Um, and so he's following Taylor's lead, so to speak. T- uh, Taylor's a model. He's an influence. And Lincoln will pick from that what he thinks he needs in order to succeed. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that you say about Lincoln, and when you finish reading the book, you realize how true what you wrote is, which was one of the great geniuses of Lincoln was that he was educable. Yes, and I I think that's a great quality, uh, an important quality in a leader. Um, So if we look back at the presidents who preceded Lincoln, um, we can see that the ones who probably are least successful, this doesn't work perfectly, but the ones who are probably least successful are the ones who are most impervious to input by others. And the ones who refuse to grow in office, the ones who refuse to learn from the experiences they have in office. Um, this, it's presidents like Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan who are just stubborn to a fault. Um, Lincoln, I think, throughout his life was always open to being educated, aware of his limitations, eager to fill the void in his own education. So when he's president, he follows that same path. He follows. He, so he knew nothing about the military before he becomes president, but he decides he'll educate himself. So he's reading everything he can get his hands on as it relates to military strategy. He's going to be that way in a lot of things, including perhaps most importantly, equality, particularly the equality of African-Americans. Lincoln, who at various times in his life had supported sending African, uh, African-American slaves back to their country of origin, as president, he's not going to do that. As president, he's going to issue the Emancipation Proclamation because he's learned up until that point that equality is an important aspect that the Constitution is designed to achieve. 
So it's his educability that ultimately sets Lincoln apart from others. Yeah. And, and the, the, the third mentor, which is the most surprising, I think actually proves that point of being able to learn from others. And that's Andrew Jackson, sort of like the surprise right. mentor because Jackson is a Democrat. Lincoln and, and Jackson really are politically opposite in many respects, but yet here is Jackson as a mentor. So I'd like to Ted, yeah, spend so a lot of time with Jackson here because yeah. he, he is the most interesting to me of all of the five mentors. Yes. And, and one, so one thing we're already seeing with Lincoln is he's not picking mentors in the same way that other people in the 19th century are picking. This becomes a distinctive quality for Lincoln. He's viewing other people, both that he reads about and that he meets as sources uh, from which he can learn. Uh, he can read people perhaps even better than he can read books. Uh, but Lincoln does not discriminate among the people he, he learns from. This is another great quality. So he can learn from Frederick Douglass uh, about abolition. He can learn from people he doesn't like, like Jefferson Davis, the head of the Confederacy. Um, he can learn from Andrew Jackson, whom Lincoln never supported politically. But here's what Lincoln understood, that Jackson had been successful politically. And there was a ruthlessness that Jackson um, took great pride in and that was an attribute of his own personality. And Lincoln figures out, quite rightly, what's the difference between Henry Clay and, and Andrew Jackson? One thing is Jackson was ruthless. Jackson would not hesitate to cut somebody down in order to get past them to succeed. So Lincoln manifests that. You'll see Lincoln be just as cold-blooded, not just before he becomes president, but as president. Another aspect of Jackson's impact is Jackson's the first president of the United States to formally um, argue against secession. He issues the proclamation against secession in the early 1830s. That's the first document Lincoln asks to see when he, wins, when he secures the election to be president. He's going to use that proclamation as a model for his own inaugural address. So again, you can see the influence of Jackson. The only portrait of a president in Lincoln's office at the White House is Andrew Jackson. And Lincoln will use that portrait to great effect. He'll show Demo people used to be Democrats. Oh, I revere Jackson. So that's politically useful. But he also reveres Jackson for his toughness, his unbend, the fact that he's unbending uh, when it comes to the policies he wants to champion. So that's how Lincoln has to be. He will not bend when it comes to defending the Union. He won't bend when it comes to opposing secession. And he gets all that from Jackson. Yeah, he he also uh, gets from Jackson um, two things, which I think in history are, you know, sort of asterisks against Lincoln's greatness, which is the suspension of habeas corpus and Supreme Court defying strategy. So maybe you can talk a little bit about those things as well. Yeah. So as we as we think about what Lincoln could learn from Jackson, we have to remember what Jackson did. And Lincoln, by the way, became a great student of history. So Lincoln's figuring out, okay, if I've got to learn how to become president, and he says that basically shortly before he becomes president, I've got to learn how to be president. The most obvious place he can look is for, at other presidents. Um, and he's got to take those lessons and adapt them to the confrontations and crises that face him. The most obvious confrontation and conflict that's facing him is, this, is the secession of several Southern states. So Lincoln's got to figure out 
how do I deal with that secession and the fact that these southern states want to fight a war? Um, and in the early part of the war, Congress is not in session. Lincoln's trying to figure out what are my powers? How do I maintain unity? How do I keep things together until Congress comes back in session? And one thing he decides is he wants to suspend habeas corpus, um, meaning he's going to suspend procedures available to people who are imprisoned, procedures that will enable them to challenge their conditions of confinement in court. Lincoln doesn't want to deal with that kind of stuff. Um, he needs to put these people away, get them out, make sure they're not bothering them anymore. So he needs a precedent. He needs a model. The model comes from Andrew Jackson when he was a general in the War of 1812, when Jackson unilaterally suspends habeas corpus to maintain order after Jackson um, prevails in New Orleans. And so Lincoln does the same thing, and he cites Jackson. Um, this will be good for Jacksonians, uh, who will then like that Lincoln is doing that. But Lincoln, as a lawyer, needs legal support. And this is the one source of law, so to speak, he can find that will support him. Lincoln's not going to be choosy about where he learns a lesson from. If it has to be from Jackson, so be it. If it has to be from Taylor, so be it. Um, and if he has to adapt, not follow their mistakes, Jackson's too close-minded. Taylor becomes too stubborn. Um, Lincoln will also learn from that and adapt accordingly. The other thing, though, that's interesting is he was, in some sense, afraid of what Jackson represented, right? Jackson Jackson was really the first popularist um, president. I mean, it's no it's no small coincidence that both Abraham Lincoln and Donald Trump have Jackson's portrait hanging in in their office, and right. it's a bit of a detour. Um, but can you talk a little bit about um, Jackson and? in the elections of 1824 and 1829, because they're very similar to sure. what we sort of see with, with Donald Trump. So there's a, I always think about Lincoln and his times, that there's so many lessons, and we'll talk about that in a bit, from then that poured over to now. And Jackson is sort of a case study. Yeah, you can definitely see some um, analogies and some similarities. And and Lincoln, by the way, is, of course, alive and watchful throughout all this time period we're about to talk about. Um so Lincoln is a young man when um, Jackson first runs for the presidency. The problem is um, that when Jackson first runs for the presidency, he gains a plurality of the popular vote, but he does not get a majority in the Electoral College. In fact, nobody gets a majority in the Electoral College. Uh, the election then gets thrown into the House of Representatives, which according to the Constitution, would only then take into consideration the top three contenders. That meant the fourth contender at that time, Henry Clay, would not be considered uh, as one of the candidates for presidency. However, Clay was the Speaker of the House. So Clay would have a little bit of impact on what happened in the House. Um, and what happens in the House of Representatives is Clay backs, not Jackson, whom he hated, but he backs John Quincy Adams who had the closest political philosophy to his own. Jackson looks at this and he, he uh, screams, this is unfair. He screams, this is a corrupt bargain. So just like President Trump was saying the election was stolen from him, Jackson's saying, I had, I had the most electoral votes, most popular vote going into all this, and I get, forgive me, screwed in the House of Representatives. Um, 
That's not fair. And Jackson spends the next four years campaigning on that basis, that the election was stolen. There's a corrupt bargain between Henry Clay, who was appointed Secretary of State by Adams. So that was his reward. You know, Clay gets rewarded. Clay, Jackson thinks that's completely illegitimate and unfair. Um, so next presidential election, Jackson runs against um, uh, Quincy, John Quincy Adams and trounces him and becomes president. Of course, he throws Clay out of being Secretary of State. He takes over the presidency, and then he seeks to try and wreak revenge on all those people that didn't support him the first time around. So Jackson's a model for revenge. He's a model for um, how to deal with unfairness. Those aren't necessarily the things that Lincoln takes away from Jackson. However, Trump takes all that away from Jackson. And, ja and Trump also sees Jackson as a populist. And so he puts the Jackson portrait in his office. Uh, Trump thinks Jackson's the, the champion of the common man and the champion for um, uh, sort of fixing a corrupt bargain or, or fixed election. Uh, Lincoln puts Jackson in the office for a much different reason. It's for his opposition to secession and for the fact that ja Jackson would, would be somebody who could stay tough when the circumstances were tough. It's a very different lesson, I think, than the one that uh, President Trump took from Jackson, but it's a lesson that will help Lincoln throughout his presidency. Indeed, in, in, in 1837, doesn't Lincoln speak at the Lyceum, one of his famous early speeches, and, yes. and, and, yes. and, he, and he rails against, <clears throat> excuse me, he rails against the demagoguery of, of Jackson. Is that right? Do I have that right? That's right. So Lincoln, although he's aware of Jackson, and I should point out that when Lincoln uh, attains his first political appointment, it's from Jackson. Uh, Jackson appoints Lincoln postmaster for the area in which Lincoln lives uh, in Illinois. So Lincoln is, in a sense, benefiting from Jackson. So it's not always just a hateful relationship. Lincoln is flexible enough. He's open enough to take help where he can get it and support. So Jackson appoints him. That's fine with Lincoln. But Lincoln will still campaign against him. Um, and later in 1837, as you point out, in one of his first speech. Uh, prominent speeches, Lincoln really delivers a speech that's against um, demagogues and against tyrants. Now, who's the demagogue and who's the tyrant that Lincoln most opposes? It's Andrew Jackson. And so Lincoln gives a long speech about how the mob follows the demagogue. That's how people thought of Jackson's followers as a mob. Um, and the mob doesn't believe in law and order. The demagogue doesn't believe in that either. Lincoln prefers a different kind of champion one that supports law and order, one that doesn't just look to the mob, but looks at the best interests of the American people and of the republic in order to uh, preserve that republic um, and its ideals. That champion, of course, for Lincoln was Henry Clay. Yeah, yeah. The the next two uh, mentors um, are are less famous in, in history, but but both very important in, in, in Lincoln's life and development. The first is uh, John Todd Stewart, a cousin of, of his wife, Mary, Mary Todd, and Lincoln's first law partner. So what, what, is, what does Lincoln take from uh, John, Starred, John Todd Stewart? Well, Lincoln, so John Todd Stewart is in many respects the first mentor 
Lincoln will have. Um, so Lincoln obviously arrives in Illinois in a place where he has no friends or family. He has to make a name for himself. Um, and he's very good about meeting people and trying to befriend other people that will be helpful to him. Um, and, and one of those people is John Todd Stewart. He meets Stewart, not just when Lincoln's a surveyor, but he le- meets Stewart as well when Lincoln's in the Black Hawk War. Lincoln joins the Black Hawk War um, on the part of American militia. And the reason is Lincoln wants to get military experience. That's going to be important for Lincoln's development as a politician and political leader. Um, so having met John Todd Stewart, they become friends. And Stewart is a very prominent lawyer. He encourages Lincoln to study law. So that's the first big impact. Lincoln passes the bar and John Todd Stewart volunteers to become Lincoln's first partner. So that's important. He's giving Lincoln a start as a lawyer. John Todd Stewart's also a Whig and Lincoln will become his campaign manager and partner, not just in law, but in politics. So Lincoln will help Stewart campaign against his first opponent in an election for the House of Representatives, that first opponent was Stephen Douglas. Uh, so Lincoln, Lincoln's there watching Stewart campaign against Douglas, sometimes substituting for Stewart in debates with Douglas, um, and Stewart beats him. That's a lesson Lincoln will remember throughout the rest of his life. But Stewart also is a Whig leader in, in the state legislature, and Stewart helps Lincoln to become a leader in the state legislature and learn there all the skills you have to learn to succeed in the legislature, particularly through what's called law growing, which is trading votes, how to reach compromise with people. Lincoln's all, learning all this at the, at the hand of, of, of Stewart. And once Stewart leaves for Washington to go to the House, Lincoln then carry on the work himself uh, and become a great leader of the Whigs in the state legislature. All this is extremely helpful for Lincoln's beginning in politics and beginning in law. And he will go, constantly go back to those lessons, lessons about compromise. Uh, uh, how to make legislation, tradecraft, all that will be important for Lincoln and being a successful politician. Yeah, because while Lincoln evolves from sort of like Article One is the most important to sort of taking on greater powers for the executive, I think it's from Stewart that he learns how to manage the legislative process, how he can get from Congress that which he will need to get. Yes, and, and, and so one should not underestimate the four terms that Lincoln spends in the state legislature before he becomes a member of the House and certainly before he becomes president as influencing his understanding of power and understanding how legislatures work. Lincoln will even later say being in the House of Representatives is not that much different than being in the state legislature. Um, so one of the things he's got to learn is, well, you got to you have to work with other people. You have to work with people who you agree with, but you also have to sometimes work with people you don't agree with. That's an incredible trait that Lincoln will develop. Um, it's not so Lincoln isn't just Jacksonian in the sense of always hating the other side. Lincoln has to learn to work with them. That's what it means to be in the legislature. Um, so Lincoln can be viewed as less threatening to the other side, more respectful to the other side. All that's going to be evident um, in Lincoln's demeanor and how he approaches politics. And, uh, and Lincoln also understands that to be a legislator means you've got to be pragmatic. You can't always win or you've got to trade votes. And compromise, therefore, is essential. That brings back Clay. Compromise is essential for success in politics. 
Um, and Lincoln will become a master negotiator and master at compromise in the state legislature, which will help him later, not just in the House, it doesn't succeed so much there, but as president. Yeah. And and Orville Browning, the fifth mentor, sort of carries forward that same, those same lessons, right? Yes. But Browning's a little more stubborn. Um, so Browning's a contemporary of Lincoln as a lawyer. Um, Browning will be helpful to Lincoln um, in also kind of securing a place that is for Lincoln in the Whig Party. Browning will help found the Republican Party in the state of Illinois. Lincoln will follow Browning there. Browning will write the, the platform, the Republican platform, Lincoln's running against uh, when he runs against Stephen Douglas. And later when Lincoln's president, he uses Browning as a, as a sounding board, um, which will be very helpful to him. And when Douglas dies, Lincoln arranges for Browning to get Douglas's seat in the legislature, particularly the Senate. And Le- Browning then becomes a daily visitor for Lincoln and really helps keep Lincoln's spirits up and provides eyes and ears for Lincoln in the Senate. Yeah, but he also, I think, provides a sort of an emotional uh, support. I, I remember reading one of the things, I mean, there are so many things I learned from this book, but one of the things that I remember that was interesting to me where you have people talking about Lincoln and they described him as being um, relentless in his quest for power, fiercely pushing people out of the way, wanting of emotion, a cold man with no affection. Um, there are a lot of descriptions of him that I just don't think of Lincoln. You know, you think of him as this warm and cuddly guy, but but not so. I, I understand that he was uh, depressed a lot, but Browning seemed to sort of help him through the the emotional aspects of his, you know, life. Is that right? I think so. So, you know, Stewart and Browning will be helpful in this regard. Um, yeah, you know, we all, we understandably, many of us think of Lincoln as the man who's captured in the Lincoln Memorial. Alone, big, almost divine-like. Um, but I think the thing that makes Lincoln great is the fact that he was a man, that he wasn't divine. He somehow had to maneuver through all the limitations that mortals have. Um, so Lincoln had to learn how to be with women, how to go out with women, uh, how, how to act as a husband. Um, he had to learn that from somebody. Seward and Browning were there. Lincoln will also um, uh, uh, lose, a, lose a child, and Browning will be very pivotal in providing emotional support for Lincoln because Browning was there for, pretty much from the beginning. Browning understands Lincoln as a man. And one reason why Browning won't have necessarily bad things to say about Lincoln as a person is because Browning really got to know him more closely. He think, Browning will think Lincoln has limitations as a leader uh, because Browning is somewhat stubborn and somewhat pompous and somewhat um, you know, uh, protective of, of those things he thinks are, uh, you know, Browning kind of figures this is what you should do and Lincoln doesn't do it. Browning just thinks it's Lincoln's fault for limitation, not Browning's limited vision or whatever else it might be. Um, so Browning hits, has his own limitations. Lincoln understands that as well. So the dance between the two of them, the interaction between the two of them, reveals a lot about their relationship and each of them throughout decades of um, their, their friendship. Um, and by the end, they might not be as close, but I think Browning is... Uh, has been hurt to some extent by the coldness and pragmatism of Lincoln, 
but Lincoln will benefit from Browning as a sounding board. So Lincoln kind of picks and chooses from those around him what he can learn and benefit from. Yeah, I think you wrote that Browning was one of the few who reviewed drafts of Lincoln's first inaugural and, and had Lincoln sort of soften its tone. Is yep. that right? Yeah, so Lincoln did not show the first inaugural to many people, but two people um, that he did show to were William Seward um, and Orville Browning. Um, Seward didn't know Lincoln as well at that point, so Seward had no hesitation in trying to recommend all sorts of changes in the inaugural address, and some were, were taken, many were not. But Browning's contribution was viewed by Lincoln's secretaries, secretaries as the most important because they had to do with tone. And Browning suggested, and Lincoln followed this, to moderate his tone, uh, particularly at that point of his presidency. So the fact that Lincoln followed that and did that is a testimony to Browning's influence. Um, and that change in tone will be important for Lincoln, not just then, but for later. So tone becomes a very important aspect of Lincoln's presidency. If you look at his public statements, they're not vengeful. They're not angry. They're always moderate. And that has a lot to do with Browning's influence. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I'd like to talk about a person who is not a mentor, but maybe gets honorary mention as, right. as a mentor. Um, and, and that is Frederick Douglass. Um, Frederick Douglass um, was the first African-American literally and sort of ideologically that, that was invited into Lincoln's White House. They, they had conversations throughout 1863, 1864 on lots of different topics. Um, talk to us a little bit about this. I mean, not why necessarily he wasn't one of the mentors, but 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 talk about the relationship between Lincoln and Douglas, because I think also, too, that was an important learning lesson for Lincoln. I think that is, that is definitely right. So this also goes back to Lincoln's educability. He, he was not going to discriminate on who would be the people he'd learn from. In, in itself, that's an extraordinary attribute. We can't say many people could emulate Lincoln in that regard, but Lincoln while he might have viewed uh, Frederick Douglass and other African-Americans as perhaps not yet being worthy of citizenship, let's say that's how Lincoln thought coming into office in 1860-1861. But Lincoln is still listening. Lincoln is still absorbing. And so Douglass, because, who becomes famous as a, as a man who escaped slavery, self-taught, one of the great, great abolitionists and one of the most visionary um, abolitionists and, and, and really uh, political thinkers in that era. Um, so Douglas will capture Lincoln's attention um, from his vision, from his eloquence, from his stubbornness in trying to champion equality. And Lincoln won't push it away. Lincoln will actually learn from that. So Douglas is invited not just once, but more than once into the White House, and Lincoln will um, seek his counsel, listen to his counsel, um, not, always, not always doing as much as Douglas suggests, but one thing Douglas is suggesting to Lincoln, which Lincoln eventually agrees with, is, look, we could take these liberated African Americans um, and 
they could become helpful to us in the war, not just symbolically, but believe me, Douglas says, they will fight to the death for the freedoms you have helped arrange for them. And Lincoln gets that, and he will allow Douglas to, to put that together. And that occurs on Lincoln's watch, but it's really largely because of Douglas's influence. And then later, um, near the, Lincoln doesn't realize it's near the end of his life, but um, Lincoln will be influenced by Douglas and others on the necessity for the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery. And perhaps most importantly, Douglas will help Lincoln see how the, the vision that Lincoln first gets from Thomas Jefferson and Henry Clay will actually be carried forth by Frederick Douglass. That's the vision of how the Declaration of Independence promises equality, but the Constitution implements that promise. Lincoln sees that and sees the connection, but it's only when he's interacting with Douglass and others as he's president that Lincoln will then see how the promise of the Declaration of Independence can make a real difference pragmatically in the real world, on the ground. We will... We'll cha- we will champion that in the United States. And so Lincoln takes that extraordinary step of the Emancipation Proclamation. Once having taken it, there's no looking back. Um, the, the war's about slavery. The war's about abolishing slavery. So as the war is dying down, Lincoln begins to champion the 13th Amendment. Um, Lincoln sees all of that as a whole, and, that's, and Douglas can take a lot of credit for that. Yeah, and it seems that in a, in a very simple sort of way, Douglas was very critical of Lincoln's first inaugural address, thought it way too conciliatory. Maybe that's what Browning's influence made it. Um, Too sacred, too, too conciliatory to the, to the, to the South, I guess. Um, When he gives his second inaugural, Douglas calls it a sacred effort, right? Mm -hmm. He, he said it sounds like a sermon where he's talking about, and maybe you could talk us the talk us through the the language of the second inaugural a little bit because th- there's some language in there that's just wonderful that Douglas you know essentially eulogizes. Um, yes, there's, a, there's extraordinary language in the second uh, inaugural, and and I think in contrasting the first and second inaugurals, what we can see is the growth of Abraham Lincoln. That's there are many things we can see, but that's one. Uh, so Lincoln goes from the first inaugural where he's moderating the tone because Lincoln wasn't somebody who was ever an extremist when it came to politics or even an extremist on the questions of slavery. But things change over the course of the war. Lincoln changes over the course of the war. Um, and one of the things Lincoln changes over the course of the war is his own rhetoric. Um, he is looking for a way to almost create a new form of American political rhetoric. This is one of the extraordinary things Lincoln does. Um, It's almost poetic. Um, Lincoln initially is taught that by Clay and Daniel Webster and a few others, but Lincoln, unlike Webster and Clay, thinks there's a lot to be had and gained from making shorter, more eloquent, poetic discourses. And the second inaugural is perhaps the culmination of that. The Gettysburg Address is one example. The second inaugural one, he's also influenced um, by uh, Douglas's language, Lincoln's own language, and by the poetic possibilities of American rhetoric. And of course, the, there, there's so many images and so many phrases and 
statements in that incredible second inaugural with malice toward none may well be one of the most resonating phrases ever to have been uttered by a president of the United States. To have a president do that near the end of a civil war was extraordinary. Some people would hate that, um, certainly hate that at the time, too weak, too conciliatory. Um, but Lincoln was trying to perceive a path forward. He was trying to create a kind of atmosphere and mindset in that second inaugural. And that's what Douglas sees as, yes, that was a sacred effort because Douglas appreciates that what Lincoln is doing there is he's trying to set the stage for what Lincoln himself called the new birth of freedom in his Gettysburg Address. Uh, so it's all coming together for Lincoln in, the, in those last few historic days in office. Right. But besides the with malice toward none, he also has, if God will the war to continue, that those who sort of died by the lash will die by the sword. Maybe you can flesh that a little, because that's a very tough, very tough line he's taking. It's almost Jacksonian in, 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 a, in a way. Yes, I mean, yes, you're, you're right to point to that. And, that. and those eloquent words actually are a reminder from Lincoln that divine providence may be at work here. That, that, um, and so those who might continue to fight against this country and benefit from the lash may die by the sword. Um, they may, in other words, they're going to, a final accounting is coming. And unless we can uh, raise ourselves up to a higher point, unless we can see the error of our ways, um, unless that happens, you will be doomed to die and doomed uh, to be almost, I'm paraphrasing, an artifact. You'll be cast aside in the old regime. Your ways are dying. What you champion is no longer existing in this country, slavery. And you, and now what we need to do is all see that the future, a better place for all of us is a place where we're going to be championing things like equality. And, um, and you can either be with us or you can die uh, if you're not. Right. And, and this segues into what you started talking about, which is, Lincoln's understanding of the relationship between the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, and the Constitution as the implementation right. vehicle for for that pledge, if you will. Yes. I mean, that, that was one of Lincoln's great, um, uh, one, of, one of Lincoln's sort of great themes. And it was a theme really throughout his life. And he first, um, it, it's first, uh, taught to him by Thomas Jefferson, because Lincoln reads the Declaration of Independence. He's moved by the words that, um, that in the Declaration of Independence about all men being created equal. And for Lincoln, those were not just empty words. He then saw through Jefferson, and particularly through Clay, much more so through Clay, how in Clay's life, Clay tried to make those words, all men being created equal, a, a reality. And Lincoln then saw that effort as the most noble effort. That was the effort he devoted his entire life to. And so um, Lincoln is therefore championing uh, reading the Constitution in light of the Declaration. That's a vision that's not uniquely his own, but he takes that vision from Jefferson, particularly from Clay, 
and he makes it his own because he puts it in his own words. Um, and this is what he's doing, not just in Gettysburg, but also um, what he's doing in that second inaugural with the extraordinary rhetoric that he uh, shares there. Yeah. And in Gettysburg, he has that the rebirth of freedom and and. It, it really, I mean, you you write that inequality was the greatest challenge of Lincoln's time. That Lincoln, as he is evolving, is devoting himself to that cause. To we get what I guess is referred to as the the second founding, right, Michael? That's right. Yes, and so all of us are educated about the first founding, the first founding of the republic, um, which was, of course, the founding of the Constitution and putting that Constitution into effect. But Lincoln's presidency is at the forefront of another major shift in constitutional vision and in the Constitution itself. And that shift is um, reflected in the ratification of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which are called the Second Founding. This is a second founding of the Republic because it's grounded in the ideals of the Declaration of Independence and it's a major shift constitutionally. States will no longer be unsupervised in the realm of civil rights, for example. Slavery will be no more law, will no longer be lawful in the United States. Uh, and equality, which is captured in the words of the 14th Amendment, will be guaranteed to each and every American. Those are radical shifts uh, that Lincoln helps to initiate in, in our Constitution. Yeah. The other thing... The other theme I drew from the book, which I like you to talk a little bit about, is that it seemed that Lincoln was a person who understood that what he was doing had to be seen in the long view of history, that this was not we were not in this moment, um, but we were in this moment uh, down a longer path in his first message to Congress in 1861. He writes that the struggle of today is not altogether for today. It is for the vast future also. And same in his message in Congress in 1862, the fiery trial through which we pass um, will end as it will end, and we'll see whether we can save or meaningfully lose the last best hope of Earth, right? Extraordinary, yeah. So again, you're seeing one of the greatest rhetoricians in the history of the United States at work here. He crafted his messages like he crafted his speeches like they were diamonds. He really worked very carefully at each and every word. And for him, the cadence was important. He, and this is largely because Lincoln grew up not just reading speeches, but understanding that speeches were most importantly heard. They were listened to. So he was trying to write those messages as if they were going to be read aloud to people, uh, just like they were read aloud to him when he was growing up. And he would write, that's how he wrote the Gettysburg Address, That, and of course he delivered the second inaugural. And at the same time, as you're pointing out, a very important theme throughout Lincoln's entire life was how will history judge us? Or more particularly for him, how will history judge me? And Lincoln, that is how life is lived. Life is lived in a way that will create a memory, create an impact that will be um, what you leave, in a sense, 
uh, on earth. It's what you leave to other generations. So this is the great, um, uh, this is one of the great visions that Lincoln has about, and he keeps reminding people that, look, we're not just here for a day. We're here to try and save something for the rest of time. And to go back to those words you mentioned in the second inaugural, you can hear the same themes when Lincoln says, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it will continue until all the wealth piled up of the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil should be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the last should be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so it still must be said that the judgment of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Very powerful language, not just about how accountability is going to be determined, but how we're judged over the over time. We're judged in history. It won't just be what we did in the past that will count. It will be how it's judged in the future that will count. And that's what Lincoln's trying to say to the American people and to people in Congress, because he wants them to rise to the occasion. Yeah, it's Psalm 19, 9, right? That, that um, extraordinary quotes. Yes. So uh, we're we're just about out of town time. I want to read you something, <clears throat> and you can give us your closing argument, <laughs> if you will, because it really proves, I think, the the, the thesis of the book at at Lincoln's at the centennial of Lincoln's birth. Booker T. Washington, who really, I guess, picked up the mantle of of Frederick Douglass as one of the great thinkers and orators, says. He, he says at this centennial, he says, Lincoln was in the truest sense great because he unfettered himself, climbed out of the valley where his vision was narrowed and weakened by fog and miasma onto the mountaintop, where in a pure, unclouded atmosphere, he could see the truth, which enabled him to rate all men in their true worth. It's an extraordinary quote, a beautiful quote, and I think it is um, exactly right. So both Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington, um, they didn't just, they, they didn't idolize Lincoln mindlessly. They both understood that he had his limitations, particularly as a white American, uh, certainly more privileged than uh, their ancestors had been. Um, but what each of them sees as Lincoln's um, greatest quality is that ability not just to be constrained by what he thinks, not just to be wedded to what he believes, but to be willing to open yourself up to being educated, to be informed by opinions other than your own. That, that aspect, that quality will allow people to see things much clearly, much more clearly and much farther, you can see down the road much better if you're able to do that. And so what Washington, I think, is recognizing there is that, is that Lincoln, during the war, wasn't just focused on winning the war, but Lincoln also had to understand where are we headed and why are we headed there? Those are big questions the President of the United States had to answer, um, particularly at a time when the United States might cease to exist. And what they appreciate that what Lincoln was able to do is to see that the future of this country was going to be grounded in this new birth of freedom. It was going to be grounded in wedding 
equality, the promise of equality in the Declaration to the guarantees of the uh, Constitution. That was going to change America, change its course, and change what it stood for. Yeah. In some sense, Lincoln answers <clears throat> the, the age-old question of what does a good person do in the face of evil? And, and, and yeah. we see that. Well, he, and it, it, this is not to say Lincoln was perfect. He was not perfect by any means. Um, and, you know, Douglas himself says in one of his speeches commemorating Lincoln, he was the white man's president. So he's not, Lincoln is not above or beyond reproach. But the, I think what Lincoln uh, and his legacy ask of all of us is to recognize his limitations, but not allow those limitations to blind us to whatever else he has to teach us uh, about his path to the presidency. So we can learn from people, not just our friends and the people we agree with, we can learn from people we disagree with. And if we do that, we end up being better informed uh, and better leaders. The book is Lincoln's Mentors, The Education of a Leader. It's a terrific read, Michael. Thank you, Thank you. for investing the years it must have taken to write this and for spending this hour with us today. Thank you. It's always fun. It's great to, to talk with you. Thank you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.